This episode deals with issues concerning suicide and depression. If you require support, please see the links provided in the show notes. If you'd have asked me all those years ago or anyone else in our small fundamentalist church if we were a cult, we'd have indignantly replied, absolutely not. Other groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're cults, but we're not a cult. Everything became normalized, though, but it wasn't until decades later after I deconstructed my entire belief system and walked away from the Christian faith entirely that I began to see just how cultish the whole thing actually was. But before all of that, for over 20 years, I'd served both as a pastor and a Bible college teacher, so I had a hand in it, furthering the toxicity also. So in the process of rebuilding my life and discovering my authentic identity, I've got lots to work through, things like religious trauma syndrome, rapture anxiety, and just so much more. Join me, Dr. Clint Haycock, on the MindShift podcast as we take a look at such topics as cult tactics and psychology, religious trauma syndrome and religious addiction, taking your life back after leaving a cult or high-control group, and finally, dominion theology and the dangers posed by the Christian right, not just in America, but indeed the world. You can find my show on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Who knows, it might just be time for a MindShift. Teenage Fundamentalist. Today, Troy, we have got someone telling their story. So it's an episode of someone else's story. We know people like stories. They identify with stories. Who today is telling their story with us? Well, we've got Kit Kennedy who's joining I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist today. She was a podcaster, a blogger. She runs the Unchurchable podcast, which I know is available on all good podcast platforms. She's a PK, for those of you that don't know what that means. That's a pastor's kid. But here we go. Listen to this. She is a whistleblower, and she also uses a pseudonym. So welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, Kit Kennedy. Yes, Kit Kennedy slash Claire McIver. Well, Claire Heath McIver, I've got so many names, but yes, Kit Kennedy is the one I prefer to use for, for this. It is lovely to be here. Lovely to finally meet you guys. And we're really glad to have you on the show. We really are. Kit, I think we often start our conversations with people saying, and, and we already know the answer to this, but let's just pretend we don't. Were you a teenage fundamentalist? I was a teenage fundamentalist. I was a homeschooled, flag dancing, street ministering, prophesying. What else did I do? Yeah, I I think the flag dancing is probably the most mortifying. I used to wear t-shirts under my spaghetti strap singlets because, you know, you couldn't show skin. I was about as fundamentalist as they could get. So where where did it all start for you? Where, Where were you brought up? What was your family environment? What was your experience? What were some of those things that you, you were just saying as a teenage fundamentalist that you did? My childhood was spent in a little country town called Sale, which we thought was the centre of the universe and a, some special portal for God's plan in Australia and the Southern Hemisphere and my dad took over a church when I was eight years old or, or nine. Um, 
really it was an unremarkable small group of charismatics in in the in the early 90s at that stage it was just me and my sister three other siblings would join us later on but um, I was homeschooled from grade one because mum and dad didn't like uh, the attitude change they they said when I started school I think for a lot of teenage fundamentalists homeschooling is actually a, a mechanism for parents to exert a little more control over their kids and not surrender that control to school. So I have my questions over why I was actually homeschooled. When I was about, I guess, 15 was when things kind of took a bit of an uptick. My dad joined the Isaac Network um, under the leadership of Dr. Jonathan David over in Malaysia. And that was really, or is really, a kind of hardcore New Apostolic Reformation kind of movement, um, heavy on the dominionism teachings. We'd, we'd sing songs like Crossing Over to Take Over and Let's Go Take This City and, and we'd learn about how to exert political influence. That was from, yeah, he joined that network when I was 15. I made my first trip over there in my early 20s, but by that stage uh, a lot of other people had been several times there was a discipleship class that all the teenagers in our church took part in called Training for Life. It, it, it's what you'd call Robert Lifton's thought reform process, really, where you're focusing so hard on the renewing of the mind and so hard on internalising the doctrine of the apostle. We started to kind of be really bathed in this purity culture experience. And I mean, there's so many themes here that are common across various different churches in America and um, and the West. But I think what made my experience quite interesting was the political focus and the high degree of involvement in the lives of people in church. Like dad still, well, I can't tell you exactly what he does because it's been seven years since I was shunned, but leadership meetings were something where you'd have to pour out all of your deepest thoughts and deepest shames and you, there was this echo chamber of agreement around whatever whatever dad wanted or whatever dad thought the spirit was telling him and you know all these cross accountabilities and while I was there people were in the habit of asking him whether they could start a relationship what they could do within the context of that relationship they'd ask him about jobs or houses or like you know, financial decisions, stuff like that, superannuation, all, all sorts of things. Kit, was that a seeking of advice or was it a genuine asking for permission? I'll put it this way. A, a statement that I heard often in discipleship or like stuff like that was if you listen to the word of the father, i.e. dad, all will go well with you. And the other statement that was thrown around a lot was you learn by obedience or you learn by pain. So, um, and I mean, who in their right mind would, would choose pain if you feel that the judgment of God is coming for you if you step out of line? So I think in high demand groups, in high control groups generally, there's a really fine line between genuine seeking of advice 
and asking for permission because of the level of fear, because of the level of God's going to judge you, because of the level of group interaction with how you live your life. You know, if you if you sin, then you've sinned not only against God, but people like I'm upset, you've you've upset me, you've sinned against me kind of thing. So I don't know the answer to that question, Troy. I feel like I feel like it, 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 for the inner circle of leadership, it probably felt a lot more like asking permission, certainly felt like asking permission for me. But for people in the outer circle of the church, it probably felt more like just, just seeking advice. So I just want to contextualise this for people. This is sale in Victoria in Australia. It's, it's a relatively small town, 10, 15,000 people probably a fair bit smaller than than that when you were, were growing up. It's a Royal Australian Air Force sort of town connection as well. So this is not an enormous town, but you're talking about that this is the portal of the Southern Hemisphere, essentially where God is going to, to come and exercise that dominion over many different realms. And, and when you say dominion, we're talking obviously Seven Mountains mandate type thing. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so all that biz. So, and of course, you know, Jesus always chooses the lowly, the the small and the unassuming. So, of course, he's Yeah, because he was born in a manger. Right. He was born in a manger manger and grew up in sale. And you know what? There's this kind of urban legend when Dad first came to sale just before he moved here in the bank, he saw the Cobb and Co Stables building and thought, oh, that would make a good church because Jesus came in a stable. And a few years ago, the church actually ended up procuring that building. And it's it's a whole, it's a very interesting thing because over the years there was talk of, of putting together a self-managed super fund to buy the building. I suspect that might be what's happened, but I have no proof of that, so I can't make any allegations there. But um, it's the building is actually owned by 24 church members that is set up as like a company that the church then, yeah, it's, it's all, it's all interesting. It's all interesting. Like a fulfillment of prophecy, I guess. Claire, was your father's church initially or even now aligned? I know you, you've, you've said that it's aligned with um, a Malaysian group, but was it aligned with any sort of denomination here in Australia? Yes, it was. Do you want another tea here? City Point, you know City Point Christian Centre that hit the news a while ago for the super homophobic, super transphobic statement of faith around the schools? They they were Christian Outreach Centre and Christian Outreach Centre is now called something else. Um, But originally City Builders Church was Christian Outreach Centre Sale and it then under the under dad's leadership went independent, became Sale City Church and then after that changed to City Builders. And do you know why he went independent? What was the what was the driving reason? My recollection there is that Dad felt that the denomination was trying to take the youth, trying to exert too much control over the youth in having the training programs that they had. And Dad didn't want to send us out for training. He wanted to train them himself. So that was one thing. I think they also sort of felt that they were pulling in a different direction when he became tied up with Jonathan David so there was just and the other thing is dad hit burnout and other other churches I think responsibly when a pastor hits burnout the best thing to do is to remove them from 
leadership, you know, indefinitely to make sure that they are adequately rehabilitated and cared for during burnout because it is a serious physical and psychological condition. But when Dad hit burnout, the leadership of Sale City Church, Christian Outreach Centre Sale, whatever it was called at the time, really kind of banded around to hide that burnout from the denomination and then he continued on in ministry. I'm often a bit more cynical about that and because I, I think that they don't quite often churches don't see the markers along the way of, of burnout and I think sometimes they might be removed from leadership because you don't want to damage the brand you want to make sure that people stay on brand and on point so quite often it is too late before they're pulled someone out because if their psychological damage is is so great that they've got to that point of burnout like it I'm not saying you can't turn around from that. Of course you can. But I just wonder, they just try and milk people right to the end and think, oh, we'll just keep praying for them. We'll pray for them. And because, you know, of course that's going to keep them psychologically safe. It, it is It is rubbish. And the thing is there's a duty of care that denominations should have towards their their ministers. I mean there's a whole generation of burnt out pastors who were screwed over on superannuation and adequate pay. Can we not at least look after their psychological health? Like I just, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's irresponsible and negligent, um, not just for those pastors, but for the congregations that they shepherd. You know, I, I really noticed at that time a change in the narrative like dad was he in the beginning he just wanted people to find Jesus he just wanted people to be saved um but the evangelist in him was replaced sort of with this this urge to become a prophet and to kind of aspire to that apostolic sort of a role and I started to hear a lot more narrative about his loss over the years and the things he'd sacrificed um which creates a sort of narrative of indebtedness and servitude that people owe him. That's my my perspective on it anyway. <laughs> so when when he went independent, was there a shift in the church at that point? I, I guess I'm trying to sort of dig and, and I'm trying to just find out, was it a good thing that he went independent or are you saying he was burnt out and he should have basically been taking time off? The latter. He should have. He was burnt out. He hit burnt out. He hit burnout a couple of times. I think that the responsible thing should have been to hand over leadership of the church. But that said, the church was pretty far gone prior to that in terms of the the Isaac network and the dominionist kind of narrative seeping in, this kind of talk of spiritual fathering. Um, later on in this episode, we'll talk about 60 minutes, but one of the one of the victims, actually two of the victims, James and Patrick, my ex-husband, um, talk about having essentially been groomed away from their parents to call my parents their mum or dad, their spiritual mum or dad. And there's countless stories of people echoing that and having really fractured relationships with their own parents and families because of this discipleship culture in city builders where they really mum and dad were spiritual mum and dad and they were had this kind of superior faith or they had this superior marriage or they they were superior to these these other kids parents when you try and objectively look at 
this and and it is difficult i want to acknowledge it's really difficult when you you're in the middle of it or you've been affected the way you, you have by this but when you try and objectively look at do you think your parents were doing things out of good intent out of out of a place of going we want to make the world a better place we totally believe and we are sold out to this message of dominion over the world because it's such a bad place it's going to harm people if we don't influence it for Jesus and if we don't take it over for Jesus people are going to get hurt they're going to get burned then ultimately they're going to go to hell or do you think it was a power thing um, and people buy into that power thing we know all the time but your situation what do you think was the intent behind that I think all of us think we are good people I think all of us are trying our best and even though my parents and I are not in contact and I have no intention of, of breaching that wall at any point, you know, cause I've got kids now and I want to keep them and I want to keep me psychologically safe. I think, I think it was good intent. I think there was this, as interesting you interviewed Keith Green or the person from last day's ministries, that whole late, 70s early 80s charismatic renewal there was this energy of Christ is coming back soon we've got to save people there was a sort of legalism in in that approach to you know you must save souls it had to be benevolent it had to be well-intentioned but the more power you give a person and the more their own damage intersects with their life and the, the way that they pastor a group I think the more risk factors you have for a group becoming truly toxic I can't honestly sit and say my dad meant to become this monster in so many people's stories of PTSD psychological damage or I can't honestly say that I, I hope that that's not the case but it's hard for me to look at him as anything but a villain so objectively, I, I don't think I, I don't think objectivity is really all that. <laughs> oh, as I said, objectivity is difficult in those sort of situations. But I, I guess I just want to draw that out for because I think sometimes, you know, sometimes it, it, it is difficult to to find the good in these sort of situations and identify whether people what their their true motives are. And I know we've got we've got sociopaths within churches it's it's very very common and certainly the odds are skewed way way against what it, it should be I mean we've got more sociopaths per capita than the many places I'm sure in churches but I guess I just wanted to pull that out from your perspective but also to to get you to step back a bit from it so let's let's dive in a little bit around being a teenage fundamentalist Within that environment, what what's this doing for you? Who are you becoming in this? What are some of your core beliefs? What you've said before that you went to Malaysia and went to was it Doctor Jonathan David? A Jonathan David, and is that the Isaac Network? Is that yes? What it was, yes. So you went over there. That was in your early twenties, but building up to that, who are you becoming? What are you doing? What are some of your Claire McIver slash Kit Kennedyisms then? Yeah, okay. This is really interesting because my, my parents recall early on when they were still living up in Wodonga, the pastor of the church, and I was little here, I'm talking a toddler or a baby even, the pastor of the church said to them, oh, this one's a sensitive one. You'll have to be careful how you raise this one. 
I wonder whether some of the situations I faced were dad kind of trying or mum and dad trying to make me not sensitive, trying to toughen me up. But I was an artistic, sensitive sort of, I, I think naturally possibly an ambivert, but there was this, you know, from age 11 I was playing piano and I was on stage doing the music thing. From age 11 I was also sharing a room with a 21-year-old youth leader who was later on diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder and thus began the trauma stages of my life because some of the things that she did in her dissociated states were terrifying and that became something that really scarred me quite deeply. So she left our family home, I think around the time I was 16, there was some significant kind of psychological damage at that point I'd also had an an accident at gymnastics where I dislocated my elbow and my shoulder had also dislocated but not being picked up because we pray for these things. We don't necessarily pursue aggressive medical intervention. (laughs) I was in pain my whole teenage life, but I was also the pastor's daughter and I was expected to be a leader among my peers I was also expected to kind of take on a pseudo parental role and really help with um, the homeschooling and the the household chores and all that kind of stuff for my four younger siblings I really limped into adulthood worn out I was worn out but I was also known as being this kind of sparkly personality red lipstick high heels talented musician knew how to draw a crowd but I reflect on that as sort of a a cult pseudo-personality a little bit because when you're discipled into a certain way of being, who who are you? Do you have the opportunity to go, no, I'm an, an introvert, I don't want to be on stage, I don't, I don't want to be this? For me, I learned that the safest place to hide was in plain sight. So I kind of became this extroverted type and by the time I was sort of 15, 16, well socialized into purity culture there was this courtship narrative that you would court when when you were of age you would submit your your desires or your your ideas about who you'd marry to dad and he'd pray about it and all that kind of stuff decide whether it was a you know worth pursuing or not a number of my friends actually left the church or wish were kind of removed from leadership and it was made very difficult for them to stay kind of a soft shunning i suppose because they'd chosen to date at one point we got wind that two youth group members were sleeping together so you know people were like sent to kind of stalk them and found them down the back of sale at the common in a car and like it's it's horrendous kind of stuff when you say it out loud you're like you know it was so normal to me but it's not normal by the time I was 18 19 it's time to start thinking about career as a homeschooled kid who hadn't set foot in a classroom since grade prep Dad wanted me to become a teacher. I purposefully flubbed the admission <laughs> paperwork and then I ended up studying business. But the only place to do that was at RMIT in the city. So I then moved to another network church and 60 Minutes called it a creepy encounter where the pastor of that church was massaging me in his basement with my top off to help with this um, shoulder injury. It wasn't one creepy encounter, though. It was nearly two years of of twice a week being in that basement, being subjected to counselling against my will. So it would become this really distressing time of 
you know, because dad had told me not to do this discipleship course at that church. This pastor was telling me that I was broken beyond repair and I needed to do this discipleship course at this church. As I said on 60 Minutes, he'd kind of say things like, you're so broken beyond repair, your family doesn't love you only for what your, you know, your talents and stuff like that. And it was really a psychological undoing. Like he was really pulling at the threads of, of my psychological well-being. I think probably because he really thought I wanted that, that I'd be good for this course or this course would be good for me. But as we know, when you're doing a, um, a mental health check on someone, you ask them whether they're safe. You ask them whether they've, you're very careful in the way that you approach this conversation. So it's not suggestive that they should take their life. But the way he had these conversations with me was very suggestive and he'd actually talk about methods of suicide that were more successful than others. And so, and I'll never forget the calling dad in a state of distress and being told not to come home until that was fixed. My plan had been to never go back to sale, to kind of fall in love and escape to Melbourne and never go back. But I was I, I came down with a pretty hardcore case of PTSD after that and returned to sale in my early 20s, a broken woman. So, Kit, can I just clarify there? You rang your father, you told him what was going on, and he told you don't come home don't until come home. this is yeah. solved. So what did he mean by that? By this stage, there was a riff happening between the two churches. They were a bit competitive, now, my, my recollection is that I told him of my distress and, and that I told him what was going on, but he says that never happened. I am sure it happened, and I'm sure it happened out the front of this mini golf place that was on the way home from the train station at uni, and I was sitting in my yellow Gemini with a, this is, which is horrific in itself, the brown corduroy, <laughs> but like he swears it never happened. Is that true or is it gaslighting? I don't know. (laughs) But um, he knew I was being massaged in the basement. He knew that there was serious arguments happening and he knew that I was distressed. That's that's messed up shit. And we're not talking, you know, it happened once or twice, as you said, like this is, this is two years, this is going on. This is... And, And in fairness, even if it had happened once or twice, right, it's still messed up shit. Oh, absolutely it is you know once or once or twice it could be opportunistic two years it's premeditated it's very well planned i mean that's that's some creepy shit i think i this is how i think it went down he kind of left me in there as sort of i felt like i was the ambassador from city builders to this other church which i won't name um but eventually he didn't pull me out until jonathan david had given the clearance to to remove me and by that but by that stage dad was like you need to write this pastor a card and say there's no hard feelings and you need to have a meeting with this other member of his church to mediate to try to like leave with no hard feelings and no offense because offense is the worst you know it's terribly sinful to be offense offended not terribly sinful to be offensive (laughs) Um, but yeah so I remember this absolute disaster of a mediation meeting it was out in mornington this pastor turned up screamed like just just yelled and you know just got very wound up and i didn't get a word in and then he kind of left and that was it but i sort of knew straight away that dad was having like you know when i 
wrote down that card, no hard feelings, like dad wanted me to forgive and move on, i.e. never seek justice for what had happened there or, or previously with this, this other person who shared a house, shared a room with me. So, yeah, it was messed up. But coming back to sale was out of the frying pan and, and back into another frying pan. <laughs> um, so it's interesting to note that even though your father was, in air quotes, independent in terms of his church, he was still answering to this person, J- Jonathan David, over in Malaysia, and he couldn't just pull his daughter out of a situation. So he, there was still a hierarchy that he was being pulled into line by. Yes, I call the I call city builders. I believe city builders is a cult. I believe that the Isaac Network is a cult, but it's kind of like a babushka doll situation of cults. Like they're independent, but they're in this you know network of churches. But like if if you were to Google city builders and look at the coverage on the Age newspaper or sixty Minutes, they actually show emails in which, as late as two thousand and fifteen. Dad was taking orders from Jonathan David and passing them directly onto the leadership. Like that's, it's shown in evidence, and I have no doubt that that continues today. Um, when they launched the Stables Building, I think it was just after the COVID lockdowns lifted. Jonathan David was actually there, and these other network churches were there from the Isaac Network. That's how they filled the building because it's only a very small group of people. But, you know, these groups are quite good at at polishing and putting on a show to make it look all shiny and look all, you know, well-attended and and look more powerful than it is. Um, Absolutely. You can roll a turd in glitter. Looks shiny. (laughs) Looks beautiful, but it's still a turd at the end of the day. I mean, that's the reality. I'm so going to quote that and put that on my Insta. (laughs) (laughs) We um, we may use it for our promo too. Has this ever happened to you? I went to Sunday school every Sunday, and now I can't hear a loud horn without having an anxiety attack. Hi, I'm recently deceased but never forgotten Christian music sex symbol Carmen. I'm calling Collect from the Big House, meaning heaven, not jail, to tell you how to get answers for your religious traumas. I started the excommunication station, and now I realize my empathy felt weird when I was a kid, and how the Council for National Policy, a shadowy Christian organization, controls just about fucking everything in America. So if you've been looking for answers, or if you've ever been on the outside wondering, hey, what's really going on in the church? These gobble ghouls have the info you need. So look up the excommunication station wherever you get your podcasts and all their socials under XCOMPOD. Peace be with you. Hey, Troy, I would like to give a huge shout-out to our Patreon supporters. So you should, Brian, because we do love our Patreon subscribers. Our Patreon subscribers get a range of benefits, including free merch, access to our exclusive subscribers group, and a monthly live video call with us. All proceeds go towards the running and promotion cost of the podcast. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash IWATF or see our Linktree URL in the show notes. Hashtag fucking blessed. I mean, look, we could we could dig into the Dominion Theory stuff and, and go forever, but we want to make sure we get to your story and, and some of the stuff that goes from here. So how old are you at this point where you've returned to sale? 
I'm 22 years old. I'm 22. Okay, so my ex-husband, his two sisters, like Patrick's my ex-husband. Let's just call him Patrick from here on in. I lived with his two sisters, Rebecca and Kathleen. I ended up a partner in a cafe, which was seven years of trying not to go bankrupt. Um, it was horrendous. But it was kingdom business. We want to cross over to take over. You know, we want to have these kingdom businesses. Um, so it's funny. I'm sitting in a car and, and the, the the cafe is now a nail salon. So it's weird seeing it. But I was running a cafe. I was working kind of in a role that was kind of uh, an annex to the Department of Education, students at risk. I was on the music team. I was on the leadership team. I was on the youth team. I was on all of the teams. And look, I'll just say, like, there, there was there was a number of kind of courtship possibilities for me over the years, but I really wanted to be treated as an equal. And I wasn't seeing that opportunity in this heavily complementarian, you know, male headship, male leadership, female submission kind of situation that I was immersed in. I was exhausted just by the weight of carrying around this trauma and chronic pain with with the shoulder. This is two cringeworthy things. One is that I wrote a couple of novels that I definitely think were cult propaganda. <laughs> but another is that I did actually have a couple of spontaneous remissions, i.e. God healed my shoulder, i.e. God healed my, you know, a couple of other conditions. As, as somebody now an agnostic with atheistic kind of fantasies, I find it difficult to interpret that, but on a kind of neuropsychological level, I do understand how spontaneous remissions happen, but I don't know what to call that. But honestly, there were so many regular PTSD triggers, and at this point my PTSD intersected with suicidal ideation. So I was living a really just unstable, just just really stressful and distressing existence, but masking it all as looking really just fantastic. When I was 27, Dad approached Patrick and said, oh, you know, you and Claire are getting along really well. And Patrick was like, yeah, you know, we've become really good friends. And Dad then said to him, oh, but you wouldn't marry her, would you? And Patrick said, no, I really admire all your daughters, but I can't see myself marrying any of them. But then eventually push came to shove and Patrick and I had a real affinity for each other. We were really good friends. I saw him as somebody who would treat me as an equal. And he was in this gay conversion practices kind of ecosystem. And it's important to call them practices because it's not just gay conversion therapy. And it shits me to tears when people call it and say, oh, I'm opposed to gay conversion therapy. Oh, really? So you're opposed to a therapeutic approach that is debunked by science, that the UN calls torture, that is so damaging and ineffective, but you're not actually saying that you're opposed to the weaponization of prayer, prophecy, and proselytizing against LGBTQIA people to a point where they develop this crippling internalized homophobia and think that God has predestined them for hell, you're okay with that. <laughs> um, that's conversion practices. So so this was happening inside the church, though. This wasn't an external parachurch thing, but it, or it was part of your, your dad's church. Okay, so what happened, there was a practitioner of gay conversion therapy, therapy proper, within an hour of us, and he was an ex gay man married to a woman but it was an older guy so he actually 
the way it's been relayed to me is that Patrick was instructed to find someone to help him with his sexuality and he found this person and, and numerous people from city builders have kind of connected with this person over the years I, I know of a few but I have no doubt that there's more the therapy aspect of it was external but the ecosystem of conversion practices was very much embedded in um, in our experience of church and I would say is embedded in a lot of churches if you're preaching and if you've got these pastoral care sessions and if you're casting demons of homosexuality or transgenderism out of people, you are undertaking conversion practices. And obviously I'm straight and this has never happened to me, but I've heard enough stories and I've seen enough instances to know that it did happen at, at City Builders and it definitely happened to Patrick. Did your father know that Patrick was was gay, yes. was go- undergoing this therapy well, I don't, I don't like to call it therapy either because it's not a therapy. And then tried to pair you off with Patrick? My impression of it that I've gotten from Patrick and that I believe 100% is that Dad started counselling him against being gay when he was a teenager. So by the time Patrick was, uh, I think he was 23 when we started courting, he believed he was cured. But I could tell because of the emotional attachment he had to those words that there was still something there but I naively thank you purity culture believe that if he was attracted to me that was enough and you know (laughs) lol so the first year of our courtship was a disaster I think I've cried in every restaurant in Gippsland because he was trying to hide his sexual orientation from himself and from me and I was trying to hide PTSD from him. So there was this struggle within both of us that just really exploded against each other. Eventually Dad um, made the call to to break off our relationship or to pause it and then I went through, at that point I was formally diagnosed with PTSD and Patrick began formal conversion practices about a year later, we got back together after having um, sat down with Jonathan David over in Malaysia, um, <laughs> which was partially to talk about what had happened with me in that basement with that pastor and partially, I think, for him to case Patrick out. And two and a half weeks later, we were engaged. I want to I just stop you there and say, your father set you up. Your father put a pause on it. Some man in Malaysia is investigating your situation and your relationship and eventually giving the blessing even from a mainstream evangelical perspective this is not normal I I like to call I think the official term is shit fuckery Um, (laughs) it's just really it's it's not normal and now as a single woman who's about to turn 40 flirty and thriving I just navigating dating as a normal is so difficult because this was what I grew up with. That bubbly persona that I put on to kind of survive my situation was obviously interpreted by a lot of people as flirtatious. And can I say, um, not so much for you two gentlemen, but for the women who are listening, it is difficult to dance with abandon for the Lord as you're expected to in evangelical churches, but not let 
the boys know that you've got titties or an ass, and it's especially difficult when your cleavage starts at your clavicle. So, you know, I was forever in trouble for flirting or for being too curvy or, you know, various different things, and now I'm, and then I'm kind of matched up with a cured gay, um, and I, I, I hate saying that because having supported him through his deconstruction and accepting his sexuality and now he he actually lives like 300 meters from me he's my best friend and I'm so proud of him for navigating difficult territory like he wasn't cured back then he's because you can't cure something that's not a problem that's not wrong that is people in evangelical circles often think that being gay is a choice no it's not if you're gay, it's not about who you're having sex with or who you're not having sex with. It's not even just about who you are attracted to. It's in everything. It's in how you dress. It's in how you walk. It's in how you present to the world. And having to repress all of that is freaking exhausting. And it's not even something that should be repressed. People should be who they are. They should like what they like. It's, it's just abhorrent the way that people talk about this. You skipped over the fact that there was a great fashion and styling sense as a, as a great <laughs> spin-off from this as well. So oh, let, let's God. not forget that. But, but oh, we're talking, God. you sort of skipped over a lot and went straight to, hey, Patrick's a great guy and we're, we're good friends. But what, what happened? I mean, you, you got married, you, you had kids. Yes. And so there's a lot in between there. What's happened in that period and what's happening for you? I mean, there's lots we could ask. I mean, you, you've been diagnosed with PTSD in a church that I'm sure doesn't believe in PTSD because you should just pray it away. So there's there's something in that. But where where are you, where are you going? You, you, you're married. There's a few years here, I'm sure. Yeah. And they were great years. I will say they were great years. So first of all, on the PTSD thing, it is subclinical now. I will never say that I'm cured because the moment I say I'm cured, I will have a meltdown and then feel, you know, I'll have an episode and I'll feel ashamed for having have an episode. I will never say I'm cured of PTSD. I will say it's subclinical and um, that I'm doing a badass job of managing it. I'll also say that it's a lot easier to manage now that I'm not in sale. So Patrick and I married. Um, the honeymoon was a high, holy shit moment for him, I think. But what people don't realise is when you've gone through, when, you, when you're deeply repressed, doesn't mean that the, the plumbing doesn't work. It just means it's complicated. When we married, people were like, oh, they're so right for each other. And we were. We were just meant to be kind of best friends, I think, but not necessarily meant to be married. Patrick threw himself into politics. He became the deputy mayor. He was running the AADC and the FEDC, I believe, for the National Party down here. Sorry, what what are the acronyms? Oh, I don't know, but it's the <laughs> the, the FEDC is the Federal Area Council, and the AADC is the Assembly something. It's it's the the state government area. So, and this is conservative political party, by the yes, way. Yes, it is. It's. The Nationals are agrarian socialists, if you're trying to, like, name them. But they are, yeah, conservative, they're farmers, they're, it's an easy party to stack because they are a lot of the members or a lot of the active members are older, so they see young blood and they're like, great, this is fantastic. So Patrick got involved and then, like, Dad's encouragement was to get other people involved as well. And soon we're, like, a couple of years in 
to our marriage and I'm exhausted. I'm running a business. I'm on the music team. I'm working another job. I'm writing fiction as escapism. I'm discipling people. I'm, you know, so exhausted. Patrick's in council and doing all this other politics stuff. And Darren Chester, the MP, the um, federal MP, locks up the pre-selection unopposed um, and then comes out and says that he is pro-marriage equality. The grassroots members of the National Party were unimpressed with this. The grassroots, the, the policy with the Nationals is that it's, it's a grassroots movement and policies are supposed to come from the membership um, and that the, the MPs then represent them. This didn't happen with, with Darren, so Patrick was encouraged to write a letter to the editor stating the displeasure of the members about that. Um, but, of course, because dad um there actually became this effort behind the scenes to remove darren chester from office to have him disendorsed by the party and so my closeted gay husband was put at the front of that and this time was a real stomach churning awful moment because obviously he knew deep down he was gay I suspected that he was still in some way same-sex attracted. And to be frank, I love, like so many of my friends are queer. And yet I became the wife of this incredible homophobe who was trying to, you know, disendorse Darren Chester. But behind the scenes there were meetings happening in my dad's lounge room where letters, there was a coordinated effort to get letters to the editor like in constantly, they were being authored by a member of, of City Builders Leadership and then different people were signing off on them. Um, a number of people did write their own letters, but a lot of them were authored by this single pen. There was no genuine backlash against Darren. He's a great MP. He's a wonderful guy. But it, it was being made to look like there was this huge backlash. Um, a number of, of church members and people affiliated with um, with dad's church became members of the national party this is branch stacking they became members of the national party with for the purpose of this campaign or during the course of this campaign we do not believe them to be genuine members and um and this effort to get darren disendorsed happened at this time i found it difficult to even leave the house it was horrendous and eventually what happened was the campaign failed Darren remained in office, but I regret to say I think maybe it has made some of his ambitions within the party perhaps a little. Sometimes I look at Barnaby Joyce and I think, how the fuck are you still in office? And I think maybe that's our fault, like in, in terms of party leadership. And Barnaby, Barnaby Joyce is a lunatic, um, but he's like bad Bob the Tomato. <laughs> um, but anyway, basically the timeline from there goes to Patrick and I trying to start a family. And I had four miscarriages over the course of a year. And that's that's a lot. And it was like compounded grief every time. And I would just cry in the shower. I would just sh- sob in the shower and kind of like just scream at God, like after all I've been through, how can you put me through this too? But honestly, I think on a nervous system level, it was like my body knew I couldn't sustain a pregnancy. I couldn't bring a child into this this reality. Um, and on the 11th of November 2015, um, having asked me that Sunday if Patrick was all right and having 
me having said no, Dad paid a pastoral care visit to, to Patrick. At this time I'd been going through counselling with a Christian couple and, and I was doing well but Dad Dad had been kind of encouraging us to go, you know, do these other courses or, you know, go over to deliverance ministries, go through fire tunnels, all that kind of bullshit. On the 11th of November, Dad paid this visit to Patrick and I watched Dad walk into the house and thought, that's not a pastoral care posture. Shoulders were up, rounded forward. He looked like he was about to swing punches. I went out for lunch with my friends and when I came back, Dad was leaving and he was in a huff and I went inside. Patrick looked like he'd absolutely seen a ghost. And what had happened was three weeks prior, um, we'd watched Going Clear, the Scientology documentary, and that was a holy shit moment for Patrick. And he'd said to me, some weeks after it, are we in an abusive church? And I said, yeah, and that was obvious. Like, you know, I said, yeah. When dad came around, Patrick kind of held up the mirror for him and kind of challenged him on a few things. And that was absolutely unacceptable. And thus began the process of us being managed out the door. I say excommunicated. Nick McKenzie, the, uh, the journalist who did the 60 Minutes piece eventually, he didn't say that because he doesn't say anything that can't be proven. But the modus operandi had been like you'd ask Dad for his advice and then he'd send you away and then he'd say, you tell me what you're going to do, but then you'd toe the line. You'd do exactly what he wanted to do. Um, so the paper trail all pointed to us having excommunicated ourselves. But in actual fact, for four months of my, it was the same day I found out I was pregnant with Henry, our son, for four months I'd really campaigned to stay because I wanted to fix it from the inside. Who wants to have to admit to themselves that their father's legacy and that they'd put so much blood, sweat and tears and, you know, sacrifice so much to support an armour bear and, and, and be part of for so many years. Who wants to admit that that has been detrimental to not only my own life but my husband's life and the lives of so many other people? And I knew that as soon as news broke that we were out, I was going to become a lightning rod of sorts for other people's stories and that happened. We tried to keep it quiet that we'd left. We went to another church in Sale and and that was restorative for a time. But three years after we left, it was the one-year anniversary of the plebiscite, which was a horrendous time. At the time of the plebiscite, I was seven months pregnant with our younger daughter. And Just for the sake of our international listeners, the plebiscite being the same-sex referendum in Australia to allow same-sex marriage. Mm. What happened in Sale was because there's so many aggressively conservative people who'd really been taught how to engage in a particular way and make it look like there was more backlash than there was, well, that's how I interpret it anyway, there was such aggressive bullying going on on, on social media and it was flying every which way and I was getting phone calls from people going, why can't you just support us in this? There was an unmarked ad that went into the newspaper that, and at the time there were several City Builders members working at the newspaper. There was just so much bullying going on and I was just copying so much flack because people either didn't know I'd left City Builders, one of the City Builders leaders was actually in the No Campaign ad, which was horrendous. My husband was crying into what was left of my lap going, maybe I'm gay. And I was dealing with that while dealing with all of this, while trying to get through a high-risk pregnancy and having no family support. And thank 
God for this other church that we were going to that they, they stepped in and offered a lot of support. And my pseudo mama, who I'm staying with at the moment, she stepped in and gave some support. But look, it, it was horrendous. And then on the year anniversary of that, there was another blow up on social media. We didn't know about it because we'd unfriended everyone, but we started getting phone calls. So eventually news broke that we were no longer at City Builders. It broke on social media. It went viral. People's stories just started blowing up our inboxes. The newspaper ran a story that it was supposed to be an attack piece, so I've heard, but it, on, on City Builders, but it actually ended up reading more like City Builders propaganda. And at that point, it became really difficult for me to leave the house. Either I was dodging cult members, I do call it a cult, Patrick had been threatened with defamation if he didn't stop me from blogging a couple of times. There'd been a couple of other sort of threats happen. They tried to involve our pastor of the, the church that we're going to in that. It's dizzying just how shitty that time was. Fast forward to January 2020, Patrick had gotten a job down in, in Melbourne and he said to me on the 20th of January, I'm doing really well or we're doing really well. And I was like, yes, I know. He's like, I'm still calling helplines a lot. And I was like, yes, I know. He embraced bisexuality as his thing at that time, but I think that was really to be kind to me, to give me hope. But on the on the 20th of January, he said, we need to transition this relationship to a uh, you know, friendship. And I was angry and upset and I cried a lot for about two and a half weeks. And then I realized that I'd felt quite platonic to him for a long time. But as a good Christian submitted wife, I was going to make that marriage work. And at the point at which I accepted that I could no longer fight for my marriage, I started fighting for the family life I wanted. And I wanted his friendship. And I wanted our kids to have parents that liked each other, not just for them. And I wanted to have his support. But also, I wanted him to move me out of sale. And so he did that in July of uh, 2020. We moved to Melbourne to a suburb I won't name. Um, He lived with us in the family home for six months to settle the kids in. We made some beautiful friends during COVID. Finally got to not fear leaving the house. Finally got to not fear having to bear the burden of other people's stories. But that burden never really went away because the whole time I was being, like there was just interest from media, radio station here or an article there and I'd said no to all of them because on a piece of paper in my jewellery box I'd made a promise to myself that I wouldn't talk to media unless it was to stop city builders from victimising other people, to stop them from gaining more power. It couldn't just be about a family grudge. It had to be a decent investigative journalist with a good reputation and it had to be at a time where I was emotionally, psychologically safe. In January of 2022, I was already aware of some alleged branch stacking within the Liberal Party because we kind of burned them pretty bad with the Nats. Kit, let me just say again for our international listeners, ironically, the Conservative Party in Australia is called the Liberal Party, right? <laughs> so, which, which is which is comedy in itself, comedy gold, I know. But we are talking about the the right wing Conservative Party in Australia, who are aligned with the Nationals. They have a coalition. I was aware of some allegations of branch stacking. I was aware that within the within the Liberal Party, they knew that there was another Heath sister. Heath's my maiden name. 
they hadn't connected the dots, but in January of 2022, a, a member of the media connected the dots, uh, a magazine, a magazine writer, and approached me about doing a gay conversion therapy story and telling our ever so inspiring story of the friendship and the beautiful partnership we have of surviving all of this. And I was like, no, you can't have a straight woman tell a story of surviving gay conversion therapy. That's Patrick's story. It is not my story. My story is got so many more layers as you've heard today it's a lot you know it's fucked in and of its own sort of right um so I said no to that and I just continued saying no to all the offers that that came back because I had no interest in being a liberal party chew toy and then I get this very excited call going would you talk to Nick McKenzie and I was like who the hell's Nick McKenzie it turns out he's the best in the business in Australia when it comes to investigative journalism. He's won, I think, 14 Walkleys. I think he's been the journalist of the year in two different categories, um, twice each. He's exposed casino corruption, war crimes, Calabrian mafia, like the guy is ballsy. So fast forward to me sitting in a cafe with this journalist going, why the heck are you in, interested in my story? Because I think I convinced myself that my story wasn't that bad. It's denial. It is that bad. <laughs> I'd, I'd coped with humour, with rationalisation, with kind of doing these deep dives into theology and, and you know, church culture and across the world trying to kind of normalise my experience, but my experience was not normal. So he's, I think, fearsome in media circles. He's, he's definitely got a fair bit of media BDE, but you meet him and he's kind of like a Labrador puppy. Like he's just like just kind and just supportive and just wants to hear the story and kind of seems genuinely interested in, in you as a person. But he took me, it, it, it took him a few months to um, convince me that my story was safe in his hands and a condition of that was that it centred other victims and that I wasn't the main story because by this stage my sister had rolled a sitting member of parliament for the safest seat in Victoria the Liberal Party was now facing serious issues in terms of losing relevance to the main voters, in terms of lurching further to the far right. And yeah, the, the factional wars were kind of taking on a bit of a life of their own within the party. And there was a state election coming up. So um, so I ended up a whistleblower, but I, I didn't do it because I wanted to air family laundry. I, I really didn't. I did it because I knew so many victims of city builders were still living in fear and dread. So many of them dealing with these scars of their time on the inside and not being able to talk about it because they'd, you know, allegedly been threatened. Like I, I did it for them. And I did it because last, well, during the pandemic, Patrick was part of an incredible group of victim survivors of gay conversion practices, you know, who helped get conversion practices banned in the state of Victoria. I'm so relentlessly proud of them for that because they re-traumatised themselves. They put themselves in this place of severe emotional, emotional kind of fraughtness so that other people wouldn't go through the abhorrent processes and practices that they'd gone through he helped get that across the line 
played a little bit of a drinking game when Danny O'Brien from the National Party gave his speech about why he wasn't opposing their gay conversion therapy ban. He mentioned Patrick's name and my name a couple of times. So we kind of were like, yeah, shut. Well, at least I was. <laughs> Patrick was somewhere else. Um, but, yeah, knowing the, the, the agenda that had been behind the political efforts within City Builders, I knew that this was just going to be dangerous for them to get into power unchecked. Um, and it is my belief that years of, of indoctrination towards armour bearing and towards, you know, you learn by obedience or you learn by pain and, you know, crossing over to take over, I kind of felt like I knew what this was all about and I felt a responsibility to speak up. So just to draw that out a bit, um, your sister is put into this very safe seat, looking at securing the seat through state parliament through the, the election. Now, this is, uh, I'm assuming to do with the Dominion theology. Let's have some influence in this political sphere of power in Victoria. Hmm. Is that correct? My feeling is that it has to be correct, but I'm really hesitant because I've been threatened with defamation so many times by various different means, including in the lead up to publishing a connection of, of the churches set up fake email accounts to threaten Nick and I, try to coerce me into silence and try to warn nine entertainment off publishing the story that was that was covered in the age renee well my sister who i who i love i really do love her i haven't had a quality conversation with her for years she likely claims that it is wholly on her that it was her desire but the renee i knew prior to wasn't interested in politics and only became interested kind of after the Darren Chester thing. So I can't really tell you what's going on in her head because I, I will not get involved in the, the thought error of thinking you can mind read. <laughs> That's something that you learn in, in prophetic circles is, oh, I know what you're, you know, God told me that this is your motivation or, you know, you, you know it's mind reading and it's actually just, it's a fallacy. So what we'll do, what we'll do, Kit, is we will make sure that we put the links to the 60-minute stories, the links to the age stories, et cetera, um, you know, everything that's on the public record so that people can go and do a bit of a, a yeah, a, a deeper dig into that. I guess my question to you now, though, is you've, you've done all this. This has all happened. Mm-hmm. Where are you now? And where's your relationship with with the church, with your family, with your once upon a time religion? I have no contact with my family. During our, you know, when we were kind of managed out the door, our relationships with our family evaporated overnight. Like, and it was a kind of a hard estrangement in the beginning. It was like nothing or, you know, no nice contact, only nasty contact. And that was for a while we kind of towed the line and tried to, attend parties and and pretend everything was okay when it just definitely wasn't but I've kind of realized that the more I kind of play in that space the more at risk I am of my children being groomed away from me which concerns me deeply because the fact is they don't see themselves as a cult they see themselves as people who are sent by God to save the world from the error of social progressiveness and the error of godlessness and all that sort of stuff what is more what would be more important to them my relationship with my children patrick's relationship with his children or their entitlement to 
these kids that, you know, that I want to keep my children safe from that. Um, so, no, I don't allow contact with my family. And I, and I hope at some point in the future there can be some contact with my siblings, but I think it would require probably a professional mediator in the beginning because I simply cannot engage with people who will try to deny the abuse and the the wrongdoing that I've lived through or that I've spoken up about because this ruins people's lives and I won't engage with it. I won't engage with the gaslighting. I won't engage with the love bombing. I won't engage with anything that's not authentic from them. So nothing there. Like I said before, in terms of faith, I'm agnostic with atheistic fantasies. I think I've seen too much to potentially to, to really rule out the existence of a higher power. But I definitely don't think of God as an old white man in the sky who who will punish you if you own dildos or don't fast forward the sex scenes in movies. I definitely don't think that God is this supreme being who um, has a set of choose your own adventure, right choice, wrong choice consequences for your life. But I don't know what the divine is and I'm open to exploring. But it's hard. I don't think I'll ever set foot in a church again. I love running Unchurchable, the podcast, because I still do love theology. I still do love thinking about spirituality and the divine and the human condition. I love that. I'm so nerdy for it. I've been studying psychology while also working as a research writer. And um, like there's the human condition is so fascinating. And the existence of spirituality is a theme that intersects with humanity in various different ways over the years. I love, but no, I, I'm not a woman of faith necessarily. But whether or not Jesus is God doesn't bother me. He was probably just a dude in my mind. But his teachings were great, love and inclusion. And when they're not polluted by centuries of patriarchy and and, and translated and retranslated to to bed down a system that suppresses women and minorities. <laughs> Jesus is okay with me. <laughs> so uh, you do love theology. So I was just wondering if you had a scripture to back up that God doesn't send dildo-owning people to hell. Uh, Jesus wept. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I think it's it's interesting. I mean, I think... Progressive theology is great and terrible at the same time because really progressive theology is trying to peel the onion in a way that it makes a different group of people cry. And truly I think it's better to just sit back and go, well, the Bible is what it is, but is it the truth? Probably not. I, I don't get behind biblical inerrancy. I remember when I first started listening to your podcast, Unchurchable, Oh, you listen? In, in, oh my God. <laughs> I did, I did. And and in the early days, you were still trying to hold on to some sort of Christianity. Yeah. And 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 I remember that. And I remember listening and thinking, oh, okay, so she's at that stage. You know what I mean? And then talking to you now, you've definitely progressed. You've definitely grown. And and I don't say that in a patronizing way, Kit. I really don't. I I'm I'm celebrating that. I just think your story, you know, my reflection on this is your story is so difficult because a you were born into it but the aggressors are your own family brian and i tell our stories we could go back to our families you know in spite of everything that was happening in the church and again i, I don't want to sound trite but my heart just goes out because if it hadn't been for your husband who you you, you now 
when your ex-husband, who you now call your best friend, this would have been even far more isolating for you. I hate to say it, but I just simply would not have survived. I simply would not have survived. That's the fact. Even when we were getting, when we were preparing for the story with Nick, there was one particular day where Patrick and I needed to sit down together and do some prep work and about three hours in, I just burst into tears. I just started sobbing and I said to him I would not have survived another year. So he he did. He saved my life and perhaps in a certain way I saved his. And, gosh, this is macabre. It's It's so macabre but here on the other side of it, there are some days when I miss my family so much but then I realise that compared to the reality of what I lived, I miss the idea of them. I miss what they should have been but I don't miss what actually happened to me but I've built this beautiful tribe of chosen family it's ironic being here and 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 being with my my pseudo mama and she's like a grandma to the kids I'm so lucky and I think for people who fear even for pastors kids in in toxic churches yeah the sense of loss is immense and you'll never you'll never forget the visceral wound of having lost family that way or having had to face up to the, the the fact that family is not safe for you and that family has done so much damage to other people. But there's this beautiful hope in the life that I now live. I've got such great friends. I have got such a great relationship with my baby daddy. I've got, I get to be a really present and compassionate mother to my children that i I wouldn't have been able to be when I was so strung out, anxious, depressed, just eaten up with trauma like I was back then. And I get to have a shot at finding love again. Dating apps, awful, but, you know, one day I'll find love again. I get to sleep in on a Sunday or go and have a boozy brunch with friends and I get to decide what my life is. And while it's been scary learning how to navigate all of that, it's so beautiful and I get to teach my daughter, my strong-spirited daughter, that she can grow up and be whatever the hell she wants. Um, she doesn't have to submit to a man or make herself less for a man or, like, sacrifice her personality because it doesn't fit with this ideal of a no negative emotion or no strong thinking and I'm so happy for her that she doesn't have to live the life I did. And I'm happy for me that I don't have to live the life I did. Kid, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Your story is extremely powerful. I, I'm i sitting here triggering and feeling overwhelmed. I'm just being honest. You know, someone that's sitting here listening to the story, dealing with my own religious baggage. But I know it's it's an amazing story to tell and it's an important story to tell. And I can hear the pain in your voice as you tell us, you know, so, so thank you. And please know this is not a trite, you know, monologue at you. I'm so, I'm so proud of you. I'm so thrilled that you are a success, that you have done all that you have done. And in the face of everything that you have gone through, you are who you are. I'm resonating with you. I'm standing with you. I support you. I know Brian does as well. And thank you so much for being you and turning this around to the point where not only did this happen to you, but you made a difference. 
you blew the whistle and you're continuing to sound the alarm. So kudos to you, Kit Kennedy, kudos to you. Thank you so much. And I've got 5% left on my computer sitting here in the car out the front of my old cafe. So if if I drop out soon, um, sorry about that. But I just want to say, yes, you still hear pain in my voice. Perhaps that's because I am in sale, but perhaps also because after years of being conditioned against negative emotion, I actually embrace the pain because it is the price of love and it is part of life's experience. But also people who are listening to this, Lifeline 131114, Life is another great resource. And I think over in America, the mental health helplines, I think it's 988. I, I'm always aware of the fact that there's so many different trigger points of trauma in my story that look after yourself after reading this. But also please know that with, with time, therapy, medication and, and friends that, that really affirm who you are and who you were born to be in terms of your natural personality, orientation, all of that kind of stuff. Life can be beautiful. Thank you again. Thank you for sitting in your car for an hour and a half to talk to us and, <laughs> and having to do that in the town that was the, the epicentre of, of your trauma. <laughs> we want to celebrate um, you celebrate who you are and who you're going to become so thank you again and have an amazing day yes and it's so lovely to meet you both thank you so much if you'd like to connect with the i was a teenage fundamentalist podcast then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes we invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on facebook which is a private group And we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes.